Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Tom, does it ever strike you that some of our listeners may be driving along, going somewhere for Christmas? Driving home for Christmas. Driving home for Christmas, very nice. Listening to this podcast and thinking to themselves, my partner loves this podcast, but I haven't got them anything for Christmas <laughs> what yet. What can I do? And, and I don't know what to do. Do you well, have an answer? Can you help these people? Well, I have a, an amazing announcement to make, which will end, what am I going to get my Resident History loving partner for Christmas misery? Because what you can do is you can go to com, and there, under Gifts... You can purchase your loved one a membership of the Rest is History Club. And, and, and you can do that right up to Christmas, can't you? It's not like you can, it won't get delivered. I mean, it will well, get delivered. Dominic, this is the amazing thing. Not only yeah. can you do it right up to Christmas, but you can specify that it gets delivered to your loved one on By Christmas. Christmas. Day. <laughs> By Father Christmas. Christmas. It couldn't be more festive. That's incredible. And what do you what do you get as a result of this? I mean, what you, you get must inc- get? You get an incredible array of bargains and benefits. <laughs> do you maybe like you'd that? like to lift? Well, maybe you'd like to list them, Dominic. Uh, you've forgotten clearly. Uh, <laughs> so you get to listen to the rest of history and no ads. You get a bonus episode, Tom. You get a bonus episode. You get a bonus week, episode every single week. week, every week. And if you sign up to become one of the Athelstan members, oh no, but also Dominic, you get uh, a live episode. Uh, once do. every month. Once every month. So we, just did, we just did the 60s, in which did. I, I did a, a brilliant impression of Bob Dylan. Yeah, and the people won't get that if they don't sign up to the club. But if you sign up to become an Athelstan member, you get a party. You get a party you, and you, you get, get more personalised than one message from us. Yeah, you get personalised messages, parties, you get all kinds of treats. It's just exciting. insane value. Perks. Yeah. Um, and it's what, what, so the ordinary membership, it, am I right in thinking it's only £6 a month? Only £6 a month. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I think we're basically giving it away. Well, anyway, that's Christmas. Sorted. That's Christmas. Yeah, sorted. It is. It's Christmas. I mean, effectively, a gift wrap for you. So don't delay. Go to resthishistorypod.com. If and you've enjoy. got a membership already, buy another or buy them for <laughs> neighbours and yes. people or possibly and stuff. for passing chimney sweeps. Yeah, exactly. Urchins. <laughs> Lean out of the streets. window and buy them all membership. <laughs> don't bother with turkeys. Buy them membership of the rest of history. It'll so, be the best Christmas ever. God bless us, everyone. (laughs) Hello, welcome to The Rest is History and the second of our two festive episodes. Um, Dominic, in the first episode, it was all about, it was all uh, the Christmas Carol. But for this second one, as a top historian of modern Britain, you would confirm, would you not, that it is very much a tradition that uh, popular formats, when it comes to Christmas, kind of put a bit of holly on, a bit of sprinkling of snow, and give it a festive spin. They do. They might uh, go to Marbella for a Christmas special. Exactly, <laughs> that kind of thing. Or Florida, or something yeah. like that. But we're not going to do that, because no. one, of, one of the popular formats that we've had this year is uh, top tens. So we've had top 10 eunuchs we've had top 10 mistresses we've had all kinds of things like that but i think it would be fair to say that probably the the most popular episode that we did with that top 10 format uh was with rachel morley who runs the charity friends of friendless churches and she did the top 10 british churches she did and actually you know what tom christmas is about family it's about, mm-hmm. you know, overlooking the slights and snubs that have piled up over the decades. It's yep. about overlooking all the things that divide you and the hatreds and resentments that have festered for so long. Yep. And that's why it's nice for me to have my sister-in-law <laughs> on the program. <laughs> Fan favourite. Yes. So Rachel so we Morley. can again pretend to bury the hatchet uh, for the next hour. And actually, Rachel's coming to us for uh, Christmas Day, aren't you, Rachel? Are you still plan to come to us for Christmas Day? I'm coming to you for Christmas Day. I've actually spent the last 10 Christmases with Dominic Sandbrook. So there you go. Oh, my God. Is is that true? Yeah, that's, that's, a terif- <laughs> that's a terrifying I fact. I know. Yeah. We do our own little podcasts on Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how exciting! But but actually, the, but for, from our point of view, the excitement of this episode is that um, Rachel, you, we we set you the challenge that you had to give us your top ten British churches in the space of an hour, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's fair to say that. I did it. The, the, Fine. You, no, you the, just, the, well, kind of, kind of. Time, time management is not on your LinkedIn page. <laughs> but, but, but it was very, it was very, very exciting. And so um, basically, 
you very kindly agreed to come back and we're going to replay that with your top 10 festive British churches. Christmas churches. How exciting. Christmas churches. The churches that have the most kind of festive connotations. And again, we're going to see if we can do it within an hour. Okay. So let's try. Stop talking. Let's go. Yeah, we've had it, haven't we? Yeah, enough flam. Let's get on. Well, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought of something actually. We should just say Christmas is a time of giving, Tom. And yes. if there's a charity that you would like to give to this Christmas, apart from just Stonehenge and your hedgehogs and all that stuff, which charity will you be donating to? Well, Christmas? I've already mentioned it. Friends of Friendless Churches. Yes. Don't donate to rival church charities. Donate to no. the Friends of Friendless Churches. Yes. Okay. Promotion over. Rachel, go. Okay. Great. Uh, fine. So it is my top 10 Christmas churches. Uh, I would probably say top tenuous Christmas churches. So kind of ten, 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 tenuous. Tenuous. Yeah, yeah, that's very good. It's supposed to be a joke. Come that's on. Top, that's top quality. Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Anyway, okay, I'll get straight into it. So the first thing is, uh, let's face it. So at Christmas time, that is when most people go to church, right? I mean, really, right. even the yeah. statistics tell us that. And it's mainly all about candles and singing and all of that. The music is, you know, it's kind of, it's dark and light. It's the wonder and the awe and the kind of somber and joyousness of it all. It's the birth of our saviour. Um, but as you're out there and you're singing along to Handel or Hayden, I think it's important to remember that these men themselves weren't, uh, they, you know, they weren't saints themselves. So Hayden, for, as example, uh, he wrote Masses for Advent. He was expelled from St. Stephen's Church Choir in Vienna for cutting off the pigtails of the other choristers. That's in between, bad. It is pretty bad. Yeah. It gets worse. In between his temper tantrums, Handel hid in dark wardrobes and quaffed champagne. Um, <laughs> did he? Er- he did. In the early 20th century, Peter Warlock, I've just broken my pen, Peter Warlock, who wrote uh, uh, Bethlehem Down, um, he was really, he was, he was famous for kind of these notorious carouses. And one thing he liked to do in particular was disturb the local, local Baptist chapel by driving around outside naked on his motorbike. <laughs> oh my engine. gosh. <laughs> but, was that as a sort of sectarianism? He didn't like Baptists? Uh, or maybe he just liked being naked on a motorbike. I don't know. And it just Quite cold enough. though at Christmas, wouldn't it? Very cold. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. But if you anyway. have an accident, it's a hard one to explain to the emergency <laughs> services. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But for me, best of all, is um, is Thomas Weeks. Uh, he was the director of music at Chichester Cathedral in the 17th century. Um, and even if we don't know it, we regularly perform his music um, at Christmas. It's kind of a, a routine sort of thing. So Hosanna, Son of David, Hark All Ye Lovely Angels Above, all this sort of thing. This was all his music. But... Um, in the 17th century, at Chichester Cathedral, he was fined for urinating on the dean from the organ loft. <laughs> and at Christmas. At Christmas, and constantly, loudly blaspheming during the services. So, Goodness. number one, wow. music at Christmas, Thomas Weeks, Chichester Cathedral. So, I think, there I think that's a Christmas tradition that should be revived, <laughs> don't you, Tom? But I think it's funny. He was only fined for it. He didn't even lose his job. <laughs> you know, what would he have know? had to do to... <laughs> I've lost his job. I know. Um, I should say that uh, that anecdote is particularly uh, came from my friend Robert Bushikiewicz, who is a uh, composer in Toronto. So thank you to Robert for that. So that's a, good that's one. a great right. anecdote. That's a great anecdote. And he was allowed to carry on composing, was he? Yeah, he was. Asked, yeah, no problem at all. Why did he do it? That's the question. Why? Well, I mean, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the blaspheming does seem weird when you're writing Christmas carols. So he's obviously he's not like an atheist or something or a or a you know. What, what, is he drunk? Is he? What's the motive? Yeah, I'd probably say probably a drunk. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Okay, yeah, we can well, that's that. also very festive, isn't it? Yeah, getting, yeah getting, exactly. Getting drunk and urinating over congregation <laughs> on top of it's your all part of the, That's yeah. lovely. Yeah, it's all part yeah. of the festive tapestry. Yeah, exactly. You've just had your Christmas lunch. You didn't do that at the Friends of Friendless Churches lunch, did you? I did not do that at the Friends of Friendless Churches <laughs> Christmas lunch. No, although we did have some nice wine, which was good. Okay, good. Thanks. That's good to know. Great. Yep. Anyway, so, next so one. that was the first one. Wow. Number one. I that was, that was ridiculously fast by your standards. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but there are some long ones. So I thought I'd, you know, I, I opened it by being, you know, light and dark, you Concise. know, somber oh, yeah. and joy. So there's long and short. Anyway, there we go. The next one's long. Right. Okay. <laughs> you opened all of this by talking about giving. Christmas is all about, you know, giving and donations to charity and all. And churches are absolutely about that. So they're, you know, benefaction boards. They fa- they hang in churches all across the, ch- the country in life and death. People wanted to donate to their local church, to their local school, the almshouse, or most commonly towards the poor. 
And, you know, I could be cynical and say that their uh, motives were to guarantee them a place in, in heaven afterwards, but maybe that's a bit mean and maybe they were just very nice, generous people, but, you know, maybe not. Anyway, um, but some of these boards make specific reference to Christmas. So one example that I really love is at Holy Trinity Blatherwick in Northamptonshire. And here, Mr. Thomas Coles, who died in the year 1684, he left a sum of money which was forever to buy a plum pudding for the oldest poor men in the oh, parish on Christmas nice. Day. Yeah. That is... Isn't that nice? That is. That's kind of Scrooge-esque. It is. And, it's lovely. And, and do they still do that? No. Oh. <laughs> oh. That's oh. one of the things, because, like, forever is a pretty, like, loose term, I think. But equally, <laughs> equally, yep. um, another Christmas one, which is not far from you, Dominic, in South Lee in Oxfordshire. I know it. You don't at all. Don't be funny. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, you don't I've seen it on road signs. I've seen it on road signs. <laughs> well, I don't know, church. I mean, right. know the church. I mean, of course I don't know the church. Anyway, there's a lovely church there called St. James's. Lovely place. But um, in there, there's a benefaction board in the North Isle. And in it, again, in the 17th century, John Hart left £50 intended for it to gather interest to buy coats at Christmas for the parish poor forever. Again. That's nice. I was taught by a man called John Hart, who was the first ever Mastermind winner. Wow. Mm. Yeah. There you go. That's good. Great Rachel, good. do we know, is this request still going or has no. that been cancelled as well? All cancelled, all over. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, I think, yeah, There's. it's interesting because a lot of these, so anyway, a lot of these things, they do say forever. And uh, yeah. They're, How they're can the church get ever. out of that though? I mean, Well, the legally. money just runs out, you know? Right. Yeah, they're bad not, investments. Yeah, the, bad the, investments. The, the, the Invested the, in the South Sea bubble or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, Northern but, Rock. So, so while, you know, the plum pudding and the coat at Christmas, those, those sorts of things were all, um, you know, those are all lovely. Some of the charity was conditional. So one of the churches that we look after is St. Elieu's Clamelieu in Powys in the Black Mountains. Stop laughing, Dominic. Um, and in 1773, Walter Watkins left... 10 shillings to be given to two of the poorest children in the parish yearly and forever. But there was one condition. They could only be lawfully begot. So, okay. So well, is, is that a problem in Wales, Rach? What are you trying to say? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that it's a problem in Wales, Dominic. I'm saying that, uh, you know, it was conditional. He didn't care whether they're, you know, yeah, they're, 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 that's harsh, though, isn't it? Poor. Because it is arguably the, the illegal Unlo- begot, exactly. unlawfully begot would require them, would require correct, it. Correct, 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 correct. Yes, exactly. Anyway, but the tradition of giving in churches is more than just all those individuals that are memorialised on these benefaction boards. And most churches had uh, poor boxes or alms boxes, and mo- most of them were inscribed, urging passersby to remember the poor. Um, and really, for centuries, these poor boxes were society's main source of um, of poor relief. So two of the earliest poor boxes in England um, date from the mid 14th century, and they're still found on Holy Island in Northumberland. Oh, but yeah. most. Yeah, there you go, Tom. Uh, Great. Yeah. But most of the surviving ones, uh, which are still in use, date from the 17th century. So from here, this is Chris, This is where the Christmasy bit comes in again. So uh, Boxing Day, it's been a tradition in the UK for centuries. Um, and though it only officially got that name in the 1830s, and it didn't become a bank holiday until the 1870s, um, it, it is celebrated on 26th of December, feast day of St. Stephen. And he was an early deacon who was charged with taking care of the poor. That was his, that was his thing. Got but stone, didn't he? Huh? Stone to death. Stone to death. He the did. First Christian yeah. martyr. Exactly. But the twenty sixth of De- that's fine. The twenty sixth <laughs> of December was the day that the rich boxed up these gifts for the poor of the parish, and it was also a day off for servants when they received a gift box for their uh, Christmas gift box from their employers, and in turn they would meet their families and they would exchange boxes. So it was like you know Christmas Boxing Day thing. But churches played a really important role in this Boxing Day tradition. So coins that were collected in these arms boxes throughout the year were held in the box. And it was opened on Christmas Day. And then on the following day, Boxing Day, the money was taken out and distributed to the poor. So isn't that lovely? So some of these alms boxes are really cool. And some of my favourite ones are in Norfolk. Um, and they kind of, I have a thing for donation boxes. I have an Instagram page called Church Donation Boxes, if anybody would like to follow me, um, <laughs> where I take pictures of donation boxes in churches. But I really like them. But these, there are some really interesting ones. And there's there, my number one, number whatever, two, uh, carved is... Um, 
it's Watton Church in Norfolk and it's this little guy and he's got like um it's a little man and he's carved and his hair is kind of all like kind of straight lines streaky down and he's got a little ha- sorry you can't see me he's got a little hand out like this and you put the coin into his hand and then it drops down into a little bag and into the the core of the um the money box and oh, I just wonderful. I love that it's such and just, how old is that 17th century and is he like a, almost like a little gnome kind of figure Rach. No, like he doesn't have a funny hat and beard and stuff like that. <laughs> but, you know, he's like a sort of comical figure, is he? Or is he a serious figure? No, he looks pretty... I mean, he looks really happy and jolly and like with his hand out, like, oh, put a coin yeah. in my hand sort of thing. Right, yeah. You know? Um, but I love it. And you can see all the wear kind of from where the coin went on his hand, like, you know, where all the paint is sort of chipped and the wood is kind of gnawed and stuff. So I love that. So anyway, boxes, donation boxes. Donation boxes are really cool. Huge part of Christmas, huge part of Boxing Day. A brilliant one to be found in Watton in Norfolk. Very okay, good. so that's that's number two. That's number two. Brilliant. Okay, okay. so, so we, we we should try and find a photograph of that and put and put that up. Yeah. So, Rachel, so will you it. will you tweet us pictures and all that sort of stuff? I will. Sure. Yeah, that's Thank fine. You. No problem. Okay. Are yes. you ready? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Number three. Okay. Number three. As we approach Christmas, I as and many other people always think of M R James. Yes. Very good, Rach. No I told stories. you to do this. I know you did. I'm like, how am I supposed to tell people? I would have done it if you. I would have done it even if you didn't tell me. That's a lie, Tom. <laughs> that, is, that is not true. Although I will say that I have to credit my uh, love of M R James completely to Dominic because I'd never heard of him until he started showing me some ghost stories and frightening the life out of me. You did. So, we took Rachel when she was quite young, Tom, to a play in London called Ghost Stories. My wife and I, and when we cro- and it was a surprise, wasn't it, Rach? Mm-hmm. It was like a surprise treat, and we we we. Went around the corner and they saw the front of the theatre and it said ghost stories. And Rachel's face fell like a stone. <laughs> it was like the blood drained. Because you're very easily spooked. I'm very with, with, spooked. Uh, were these based on M.R. James? No. no. They were based on... Um, were they based on like roles? Because M.R. James, we should say, shouldn't we? Um, yeah, sorry. M.R. James. Go on, Tom. Tell us who M.R. James is. I, I can tell you. All right. Yeah, you're the guest. I, I'm the guest. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. And I've got the notes, so I might as well, you know, use them. Um, so, oh, so, okay. Emma James, he was a dean and provost of King's College, Cambridge. He was a vice chancellor of uh, Cambridge University. And he was one of the most distinguished um, scholars in the world for his work on manuscripts. And it was kind of uh, late 19th, early 20th century. That's when he was doing all his work. Um, but really, it's for his ghost stories that he's best remembered. And he started writing these ghost stories while he was at King's. Um, and after Christmas Eve services at the chapel, he would invite a group of, a select group of um, students, his friends, his colleagues, back to his room to hear one of these ghost stories that he had written. So that is M.R. James. And they're always great. about kind of antiquarians who go and uncover yeah. strange things in churches and buildings. Kind of find whistles and things. They, mm-hmm. Right. And then they unleash a curse and then there's yeah. like a, a scratching well, at the door or a figure on the landscape. Or, exactly. So in the... Um, in the collected ghost stories of M.R. James, um, Daryl Jones has written this introduction, and I think he writes the most succinct kind of summary of James's uh, his style, kind of uh, really brilliantly. So he says, in a typical M.R. James story, a bachelor, don, or antiquarian scholar discovers a lost manuscript or artifact which unleashes supernatural forces, causing him to rethink his comfortable assumptions about the, rea- the nature of reality. That's good. Very good. Yeah, yeah. it is. So that so that is basically like that is the that's that the is that's the plot of nearly every other every single yeah. M or James story. But James himself is sort of this person because he himself, um, in the kind of early 1900s, discovered a manuscript fragment that led to extensive excavation at the Abbey ruins in Bury St Edmunds, and they uh, it led to the discovery of um, 12th century graves of. Graves of 12th century abbots that had been lost since the dissolution. So, you know, so he was, you know, so he was actually kind of living this life himself, really. He was this yeah. bachelor, don, you know, antiquarian scholar. He was this person. So he's, you know, a lot of it is kind of autobiographical. My favourite M.R. James story is The Treasure of Amit Thomas. Uh, Tom, you don't know it. Dominic, you think it's... Well, good. I might do. Remind me of it. I'm sure okay, it'll come so back. It's a, schol- it's a scholar of medieval history. Um, and he tells a rector this tale of he's searching in an abbey library and he found clues that lead him to the uh, hidden treasure of this disgraced abbot. Um, basically, he finds a code in the stained glass and it leads him, it tells him where the treasure is hidden. And it's so cool. Like, I love that. I love that kind of, you know, the deciphering all the codes and stuff like that. But I said at the beginning that, you know, so, so much of it was autobiographical. So M.R. James actually is this scholar in this story. So he was cataloging the, cataloging the glass from the German abbey at Steinfeld. 
And so upon the dissolution of that abbey, a lot of the 16th century glass was brought over to East Anglia. And it's in lots of East Anglian churches, but a huge amount of it went to the chapel at Astridge House, Ashridge House in Hertfordshire. Um, and now a lot of it is in the V&A. But actually, M.R. James was the guy who was cataloguing this glass at Ashridge House. So he was actually working with these fragments. So he was directly inspired by the, the objects he was working with. Uh, M.R. James, his last story that he wrote only about five months before he died is called A Vignette. Um, he didn't especially rate it, but it's thought to be the most um, kind of autobiographical of all of his stories. And it's all about a child seeing a spectre or a monster in the garden of a rectory that he lives. And that was um, at Great Livermere in Suffolk, where he grew up himself. James, he used characters from the gravestones, the names on those gravestones at Great Livermere in many of his stories. So there's um, Mrs. Mother Soul, she's in the ash tree. There's Mr. Gaudy in Mezzotint. But James himself is buried at the back of St. John's Cemetery in Eton. And it's re- I find it so sad because I think um, he's so, he's his stories are so popular and so loved. And he's just got this simple little headstone um, that just gives the date that he was a provost at Cambridge and Eton, and um, nothing about you know any anything other of his work, and it's it's lost at the back of the cemetery, completely overgrown, and you really have to like dig your way around. But to that's find it. that's quite fitting, isn't it? It is fitting. I was just a kind of you know a lost something. a lost tomb. I know. People, you know, you really have to know what you're looking for. I know, but anyway, I feel like it's a bit sad that you know. Yeah, yeah no, I, that is yeah. sad. Okay, so okay. is that number three? That's number three. Yeah. Oh my good, good God, okay. Tom. So. Have we? It's the next one, a long one. Yeah. Let's take a break now. Then we Tom. should take oh. a break then. But and then, such and a, then, because then, Rachel, you've got you've got the massive challenge that you've got to get seven in half an hour. Same jeopardy as before. It's exactly so the exciting. same story. Yeah, it is very exciting. We were it's, being it's we were being too we were being too jovial at the beginning. We should have should have wasted time. <laughs> I don't think the listeners will think it was a waste. I think they'll think it was time well spent. No, right. I think that's a fair point, but but um, it, it's definitely kind of festive jeopardy. So, okay, let's uh, get on with the ad. So, so we'll, we'll get on with the ad. Um, <laughs> we'll do this very quickly, and then we'll see you uh, back after the break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, it's that time of the week when we like to talk about our friends at the online magazine Unheard. U-N-H-E-R-D. That's unheard.com. Pushing back, as they always are, against herd mentality uh, and encouraging independent thinking. And Tom, do you know what Unheard have on their website this week? I do, Dominic. Uh, There's an excellent article by uh, the Reverend Giles Fraser, one of Britain's very top-amazed vicars, uh, called Secular Christmas is a Lie. And do you know what he says? Well, that sounds uh, very strong. What does he say? He says only its Christian understanding makes sense. 
Oh, which I completely agree with. Yeah. yeah. How come you well, didn't you, write that I, article? Well, do you know, I did. I, I wrote it for Unheard last year, an article <laughs> entitled the myth, the myth of Pagan Christmas. Oh, my word. You're not telling me that Giles Fraser is stepping on your toes. No, and- no well, I didn't well, think, think of Vicar. I mean, I'm, I'm treading on the Vicar's toes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it's a sli- slightly different perspective. Um, so my perspective was that, uh, you know, the argument... Well, actually, that we talked about with Ronald Hutton in our um, episode on paganism, the idea that Christmas is uh, a, a kind of a, a Christian reworking of a primal pagan festival, I disputed that. So that's what oh, yeah. that's you don't much, agree with that at all, do you? No, that was very much my. And Charles Fraser clearly. So listen, I'll tell you what I think people should do. I think a lot of people should should. It says here, gift. I don't use the word gift as a verb. Um, I think they should give. <laughs> unheard membership to a friend or family member for christmas do you think that's a good idea tom i think it's a brilliant idea because some people may know somebody who says here who would do with confronting some different perspectives well i mean giles fraser is not going to be encountering different perspectives as he reads your article is he? <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa but yeah, other people but, may i mean they may but once be... you become part of the unheard herd yeah then the safety in numbers but if you're not part of that herd and if you know people who are not part of that herd, Join they in. may they may in the nicest possible way benefit from questioning some of their certainties. And I think unheard membership could be for them. Don't you, Tom? I do. And there's a special offer which brings an annual subscription down £10 to only £39. No, it's nothing. And they'll throw in an unheard bag along with it, immune to herd mentality. It says that on the bag, apparently. Yeah, it does. Let's hope you don't get photographed with a lot of other people with that bag. <laughs> That'd be disastrous. Dominic, you already made that joke. I know, but I th- it's good. It's so good I made it twice. <laughs> okay, so um, if you want to take up that offer, and remember that's uh, it's down £10 at the moment, um, fabulous offer. Unheard is a, a wonderful site full of amazing stuff, uh, and not just by um, me and Dominic. Uh, you can visit unheard.com to find out more. U-N-H-E-R-D.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, we are once again in Jeopardy territory. Rachel Morley has seven churches to do in half an hour or so, Rach. So mm-hmm. go. We're going to talk less oh. and you're going to talk more. Go. Okay, great. So Christmas break. It's all about a time for over- overeating and watching films, right? So there are lots of cult classics that people watch year in, year out. Miracle on 34th Street, It's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, Die Hard. For the Die Hard fans out there, there's a scene yeah. in Heidi Lake Church. <laughs> uh, which in real life is a Highland Lake Community Church in Denver, Colorado. Oh. Or some people might like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That was a Christmas movie in 1968. If you're a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang fan, you should go to St. James's Burton Lazarus in Leicestershire. That's a very fine Norman church that actually once homed one of England's first leper hospitals in the 12th century. But anyway, in the churchyard, you'll see the Zabrowski family grave, Count Louis Zabrowski died aged 29 he was a racing car driver and he was the owner of the real life chitty chitty bang bang that he built himself and that ian fleming uh, wrote his novel on um, both of lewis's parents were dead by the time he was 16 uh, he was rep- and he was at that point reported to be the fourth rich- richest child in the world fourth anyway, richest fourth richest but i have never seen die hard and i've never seen chitty chitty bang bang and i have no idea what i'm talking about <laughs> so i'm just going to stick to <laughs> what never i stopped do. us on this podcast <laughs> yeah we've never that never happened. <laughs> so, um, M.R. James, that we've spoken about just before the break, his ghost stories are very much derived on a Victorian tradition. And one of the most beloved Victorian ghost stories is, of course, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Ah, uh, yes, our previous episode. So, um, since it was written in 1843, and according to Wikipedia and my pretty unreliable counting efforts, there have been 25 film versions, 30 cartoon versions, and 22 TV shows um, as well as loads of audio and radio versions. So I think it's probably like one of the most adaptive things. And a mime things. version. Yeah, and Marcel mime. Marceau. Oh, yeah. okay. That sounds right. terrible though, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds rubbish. Um, his body but- is his tool. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> Welcome. But for one of like the most um, kind of enduring, popular and adapted stories, um, <clears throat> kind of, you know, of the last 150 whatever years, 160 years, it actually took Dickens just six weeks to write the story, which is about double the time it takes Dominic to write an Adventure in Time book. Ah, very oh, good. Right. It's good publicity. Good publicity good. Again. So they're available for more good booksellers, and it's not too late to get your Christmas shopping in. So, so 
anyway, it took six weeks for him to write and he really had such high hopes for it, but it didn't start off too well. Of the first 6,000 copies, he only made a profit of £137, whereas he had hoped to make a profit of about 1000 And that was because um, the printing and binding was really expensive, but also there were pirate copies being sold for just 2p. Um, Claire Tomalin, in her excellent Charles Dickens biography, has you know loads of information about all of this, and I would absolutely recommend Claire Tomalin's biography on absolutely anything. Uh, Thomas Hardy, Samuel Pepys, everybody. She writes brilliant books. Um, but... <clears throat> All of that said, after a slow start, it did take off. And, you know, as I said, it's arguably the best known, uh, best known and most popular Dickens story. In its first hundred years, it sold two million copies in the US alone. Dickens took it on tour in England and he wrote and performed all of these extended sections with different kind of, you know, drawing out different characters and their stories. People queued and thousands were regularly disappointed because they couldn't get in or they couldn't get tickets. Um... But Dickens sets his story in London, like he told us all about yesterday. So I'm kind of probably going to be repeating some of the things that you've said. Um, but some of the churches and the churchy locations, such as St. Paul's Cathedral, are clearly identified and we know where they are and what they yeah. are. But mm-hmm. for, for others, I've consulted the website London Walking Tours. Mm-hmm. And they convincingly argue that the ancient tower of a church with the gruff old bell that was always peeping slyly down on Scrooge out of a gothic window in the wall is St. Michael's Cornhill. Does that That's correct? what we said, Tom. That's what we said. That's Rachel yes. agrees with us. Yes. Okay, Brilliant. great. Did we um, consult the same websites? I think we probably did. Probably. <laughs> If he if he googles Dickens locations, <laughs> we would I never mean, do that. I mean, really? I was at the I was at the Bodleian Library. <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, so London is all well and good, um, but I'd like to give the final word and the final church number four to my beloved Shrewsbury. They filmed a Christmas Carol in Shrewsbury in the nineteen eighties. 1984, to be precise, Dominic. I um, um, I answered an advert in their local paper, the British North Journal, to appear as an urchin, but they didn't oh, select. Dominic, they didn't your select acting me. career. They didn't <laughs> select me. Oh. It's that whole Paddington story all over again, Tom. <laughs> oh, so you could have played you. Paddington, and yeah. you could have played a Victorian urchin. Yeah, I probably would have been like Scrooge or something, but yeah, but, but I missed you're, out. You're you're too well fed to really be a Victorian urchin. Oh, thanks, Rage. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. You could be a Victorian philanthropist, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could. I yeah, could have been a, oh, Mr. Fezziwig. I'd have been Mr. Fezziwig. Yes. Or, like, yeah. you know, Mr. Watermelon, the fella from the Muppets version. Watermelon? Melon? <laughs> Honeydew. Honeydew. <laughs> Honeydew. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Watermelon. <laughs> sorry, Honeydew. <laughs> that, would, that, that would make me beaker. <laughs> it would. It would. <laughs> That's actually very apt. <laughs> it is, actually. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway. Yeah, terrifying thought. Number yeah. four. 1984, A Christmas Carol uh, was filmed in Shrewsbury. Uh, there's loads of CGI, so they put in like St. Paul's and all of the London landmarks to um, uh, to kind of make it look like London. But there's one prop that remains in Shrewsbury in a churchyard to this day from that film. So it's been there for like nearly 40 years. And that is in the churchyard of St. Chad's, which is, um, oh, it's, a, just a, it's the new St. Chad's. So there's the old St. Chad's, which is a bit old and ruined and it's a bit sad, but it's having repairs at the moment. But if you go to the new St. Chad's, it's round and it's got a lovely dome and it's, you know, a lovely Georgian church. Um, but if you scroll, scroll, kind of scrabble around in the undergrowth there, you'll see a huge slab of limestone inscribed with the words Ebenezer Scrooge. And it's oh, wow. still there. Oh, that's and, good. Yeah, and they never removed it. So, yeah, it's still there. <laughs> so, yeah. Floria Salopia. No, that's it. That's that's a brilliant number four. Okay, yeah. great. Christmas baking. I love I love baking. I love Christmas baking. Uh, I love baking. Full stop. Dominic uh, has a um, something that he describes my baking as never knowingly underbaked. <laughs> <laughs> there is some truth. <laughs> but Rachel makes very very good cakes. Tom, she wants she's made a lot of birthday cakes that are, that have occasion comment from other parents who oh, said well. that they who's your professional cake maker. Yeah. Like the Death Star. Rachel made a whole Death Star spherical oh, wow. out of chocolate Arthur's, cake. Arthur's birthday. Yeah. Arthur's birthday. Um, yeah. The Hogwarts. Hogwarts. Anyway, that's all fine. So one thing that I use in all of my baking, not all of it, but most of it, would be self-raising flour. So does anybody know about the history of self-raising flour? No. Tom, you must know all about this. <laughs> no. <laughs> you call yourself historians. Anyway. Um, so, okay. The next time you open your kitchen cupboard, spare a thought for Henry Jones. So Henry Jones okay. was born in 1812 in Monmouthshire and he was a Brist- he went on to <coughs> Bristol to make his fortune um, and he kind of crossed over the Severn Estuary into the metropolis of the West and he set up a business in Broadmead in Bristol and he, uh, 
he, he was basically a baker and he was very innovative. And in 1845, when he was 33 years old, he invented something that made his fortune and just kind of changed the baking world forever. Forever. He invented, he basically invented self-raising flour. Okay. That's oh. good. It's a good. It is really good. Um, so, and he obtained a patent for it and Henry Jones Bristol was, you know, all great, blah, 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 blah. Uh, he was uh, appointed purveyor of the patent flour and biscuits to Queen Victoria. Um, and basically what was very interesting, I think, is that the, uh, the armed forces of the crown were really slow to take up. They should have, they, I mean, they could have used his flour for all of their things, but they were really slow to take up. They were very distrustful of it. And it wasn't until... The armed forces. Was that the fault of Dominic, the, the useless... Duke Commander, of Cambridge. The Duke, Duke of Cambridge, Cambridge. Who was the most incompetent person that we saw in our... In our statues. Yeah, our statues walk. Oh, and you right. were really keen that he continued to stand as a symbol of incompetence. Uh, yes. Sort of inspiration to people. Yes, and so he, <laughs> he missed out on self-raising flour. Self-raising. Which, but hold on, why would the... What, what military because, purpose because self- would, uh, No, 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 no. Like, for, for the food. For food. Like, for, for, for you know, biscuits. For, they for could feed, throw yeah. it in the faces of the French. <laughs> no. <laughs> biscuits are, and joking. weevils. I'm joking. Go on, yeah, Rich. Yeah, fine. So, you know, the kind of biscuits and the kind of the staple of the Royal Navy, they could have been... They could have had nice biscuits, basically, but they didn't. Until... Florence Nightingale herself intervened during the Crimean War. And basically she got uh, self-raising flour used by the army for their biscuits. So she's got one over Mary Seacole at last on flour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she has. Um, But anyway, basically, this is a quick one. Henry Jones, self-raising flour. He was born in Monmouthshire in Wales. He got married in a church, which is a friend of friend of churches church. It's St. Michael's and All Angels, Lanfahangel, Roggett. Say that again. (laughs) Dominic. It's Plan for Hangel Rogget. Very good. No, I just wanted to hear it. I thought it was really nice. Right. Actually, it is absolutely beautiful. Plan for Hangel Rogget actually translates as um, the Church of St. Michael in the Valley of the Rodier. And it's so beautiful. That's a Come beautiful on. name. That's yeah. lovely. It is a beautiful name. Very nice. Anyway, uh, that's Henry Jones. He got married in Saint, uh, in that church at Langfahangel Rogget, and he's buried in St. Mary's Caldecott uh, churchyard, not nearby, but his invention lives on and is used every single day by bakers all across the world. Okay, so that's four. Is that five? I can't no, that's five. That's five. That's, that's, five. Five. that's five. five. So we're halfway there. We're halfway through. Yeah, we're nearly there. Great. Um, way up north, where the air gets cold, there's a tale about Christmas that we've all been told. That's the Beach Boys. And they're singing about little Saint Nick. And so little, so Saint Nicholas was a fourth century Turkish bishop and he became the patron saint of children after he gave three bags of gold as a dowry to save three sisters from prostitution. And he revived three murdered boys that had been pickled in brine. And he had loads of other miracles, including the miracle of the cop. I don't really know if we have time to be talking about the miracle of the cop, but anyway. Um, Is it, can you, can you describe it in a sentence? Uh, a long sentence that has no <laughs> um, I'm, I'm amazed to hear that okay <laughs> a rich man prays at St Nick's tomb and says if he gives him a son he'll donate a golden cup to the tomb um, I don't really know why the dead saint wants a cup but anyway um, the rich man gets the son and he thinks he can be clever and give a fake gold top cup to St Nicholas's tomb and keep the real gold one for himself. The rich man uh, sends his son to the river with the cup to get some water. The son falls in, disappears, and or drowns. We don't know. The rich man is distraught. Then he goes to the tomb with his fake cup and prays and is all weepy. Um, uh, and then uh, like a hand appears out of nowhere. It throws the fake cup back at the man. It knocks him over. And then the dead or lost son appears and says, St. Nicholas saved him and hand over the gold cup to the tomb. <laughs> and you'll get your son wow. back. They do. And everybody lives happily ever after. Anyway. Um, the uh, the cycles of St. Nicholas's miracles are found in medieval wall paintings in loads of churches like St. Mary Aldermaston in Berkshire, Haddon Hall Chapel in Derbyshire, All Saints Inworth in Essex. Um, but I think my favourite depiction has to go to um, uh, the St. Nicholas's miracles carved onto the 12th century font at Winchester Cathedral. And it's a tournine marble, font of Belgian, not real marble, polished black limestone. Um, but on that, you have the um, miracles of the you know, reviving the drowned boys, the miracle of the golden cup, the miracle of the 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 girl, the the prostitution gold dowry things, um, and it's beautifully polished and it's just divine. Um, and there are only seven Tournai marble fonts in the whole of England, and four of them are in Hampshire. Um, and this one at Winchester Cathedral is just beautifully carved, you know, so distinct. Um, ten out of ten. 
I'm amazed they don't make more of it, bearing okay. in mind the popularity of Father Christmas. Yeah. Well, talking about Father Christmas, I, I was actually, whilst I was reading about this, I kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole and wondered why Santa Claus was called Santa Claus. Do you know this? It's American, isn't it? It's because of, it's melding of traditions in America. Yeah, isn't it? Saint, Saint Nicholas. Oh, okay, fine. Isn't that, is that what it is, Rach? Yeah, it's uh, 18th century Dutch families that went to America. So uh, Saint Nicholas in Dutch is Sint Niklas, that was shortened to Sinterklaas. And yeah. then that eventually became Santa Claus. I'm very so, fanatical against Santa Claus. I'm very much a Father Christmas. You're a Father Christmas man, aren't you? Are you we, really? we, yeah, yeah, we talked about this last year in our, our previous Christmas special. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. You never hear the word Santa Claus past my lips, Rach. Never. You would, you would never. And actually, if anybody else says Santa Claus, you always kind of admonish them, don't you? <laughs> I'm, not, um, I'm a nice person that way. I know. The yeah. curling of the lip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The sneer no. of cold command. No, Tom, it's not even like that. He'll say, Santa Claus? Who's Santa Claus? Yeah. Who, who are you talking about? Do you mean Father Christmas? He'll take, he'll take back the sixpence that he just given to the, <laughs> <laughs> the shoeless chimney sweep. This is a terrible if insight into, a, into Christmas in this household. I know, yes. it is. It absolutely is. But it's um, so good that Rachel comes every year. So, draw your own conclusions. And I would say that uh, Dominic is the, one of the best people to spend Christmas with, I would say. Oh, great. That is so Neither. touching to hear. Yeah, so, much, so much fun. So much fun. The so. jollity of Christmas. <laughs> Mr. For, Mr. I'll be coming for the next 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Playing Sir Roger the Coverley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, okay, let's go on. That was number six, Winchester Cathedral, Tournai Marble Font, St. Nicholas, great. Okay, next up is uh, number seven. So there's loads of talk this year, again, like last year, about Christmas being cancelled, second year in a row. Everyone's very sad about it. But actually in Scotland, Christmas was cancelled for about 400 years. Now, Tom, do you know this? You know you know it, do you, Tom? Yeah, yeah. It only, um, I think it only became a holiday in the 60s. Yeah, Dominic didn't I mean, know this at all. I traded out on him last week. Yeah, I didn't know it. I didn't know it. I don't know. I still don't. Tell me, okay. Rich. I will tell you, Dominic. So in, in 1583, there was a decree made at St. Mungo's Cathedral, which is Glasgow Cathedral. That is number seven. Um, just so you know, just so there's no doubt. Um, the, the, so the Glasgow Kirk rejected a calendar defined by mysterious um, and yeah. superstitious times. Uh, Popery. Popery, no popery, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And they ordered the excommun- excommunication of those who celebrated Christmas or Yule. And even singing a Christmas carol was considered a serious crime. Eventually, in 1640, an act of parliament in Scotland made the celebration of Christmas illegal. And even just baking a Christmas bread was a criminal act. Wow, that's harsh. It is harsh. The ban was officially repealed in 1712, but the church continued to frown upon any festive celebrations and the punishment were harsh. And there was no public holiday for Christmas people on Christmas Day. So it wasn't until 1958, so the 25th of December. Yeah, 1958, 25th of December became a public holiday in Scotland. Boxing Day, which we've already talked about in church number two, uh, only became a public holiday in 1974. So because Christmas was cancelled, the Scots made a much bigger deal of New Year's Eve or Hogmanay. So, uh, ah, yeah, I, so that's why they make such a big deal of it. I didn't know that. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah. So what were they doing in sort of the 19, early 1950s while well, people in England and indeed the rest of the world were celebrating Christmas? Uh, Are people going genuinely going to, going to work in Scotland? Really? I think so, yeah. Scottish listeners. Tell uh, us. Tell us, yeah, tell what us. Were you, what were you doing in 1950s, Christmas 1957? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we want to know. But Scotland wasn't the only place that had a cancelled Christmas. Um, so in 17th century England, it was thought that Christmas, again, was far too much fun. It wasn't treated with the <clears throat> solemnity that it deserved. So in 1647, the long parliament said that Christmas should no longer be, be recognised and that led to general unrest. And in Canterbury, there was a woman thrown in prison for baking a Christmas pudding. And shopkeepers wow. were imprisoned for not opening their shops on Christmas Day. Yeah. And Father um, Christmas was banned, wasn't he? There was yeah. a cartoon of Father Christmas being sent packing. Wrongly attributed all this to Oliver Cromwell. But he, mm. of course, was not in not running the country at that point. Your big hero. Yeah. Yep. 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 Everyone knows that. Okay. No, okay. I'm making very good time. I'm very So St. Mungo's was the church? Number seven. Yeah. Yeah. Because people were complaining the last time that I didn't have an active... Scottish church in my list. So you've got a cath- an active yeah. Scottish cathedral now. So yeah. ha- happy, happy Christmas. 
okay. So the next one. Uh, at this time of the year, lots of people will be getting new kind of diaries or calendars in their Christmas stockings on Christmas morning. Or if you don't get one in your stocking, you might get a free one from your local Chinese. Um, if you're lucky. Um, uh, but there's a church in Kent that has the coolest and the most difficult to read calendar etched into one of its walls. So this church, church number eight, is St. Mary's East Street, and this is calendars. So this is really hard for me to try to explain. I'm going to do my absolute best. But there's one pillar, and it's carved, uh, it was carved in the 1320s, and it's got this Dominical, Dominical dial carved into it. Tom, you might know about it. Dominic, you won't know anything. Um, I, I don't. It's so it's I th- I think it's unique in English churches. Uh if it's not unique, it's absolutely very, very rare. Um so it's called a Dominical dial or a Sunday letter dial. And what it involves is it's four concept- concentric circles and they're divided into twenty-eight equal parts, and that depicts the twenty-eight years of the solar cycle. And the twenty-eight parts carry really deeply cut Lombardic letters A to G. And they each appear 28, uh, they, sorry, they appear, each letter appears four times in the 28 segments. And then in the next outer ring, each letter appears once and the double lettering is allowed to allow for leap years. You know who'd um, like this? It's Seb Falk, who did medieval yeah. science. Yeah. Medieval science. He'd, he'd love a medieval calendar. Well, the thing is, I'm going to try to explain how it works, but I don't really know. So I'm going to, you know. Oh, right. Perfect. Anyway, well, should we just say it works? Should we just say it kind of works? No, Tom, I have things you, to say. Uh, okay, okay. So, Sorry, no. Um, so what the dial was used for specifically, it was, it was used to calculate the day of Easter in the following year. And from that, then you could um, calculate the dates of the subsequent festivals and feast days, including Christmas. So I, like, I really haven't been able to get my head around how it works, but the letters need to be read in conjunction with the golden numbers. And each letter corresponds to a different number. So A equals zero, G equals one, F equals two. That's a very strange way of ordering. I know, exactly. Um, This is like the worst Christmas game ever. (laughs) (laughs) And if you roll a six. (laughs) (laughs) So the Sunday letters are set out in the Book of Common Prayer, tables and rules for movable and immovable feasts. And apparently it will all be good and the calculations will be good and true until 2099. So that's pretty good going, Mm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. This is apparently this is how it works. You take whatever year it is, like 2021, you add to that a quarter of that year, then mm. you add the number six. <laughs> <laughs> you stand on one leg. <laughs> then you divide all of that by seven. And whatever the remainder is, i.e. zero to six, that will correspond to a letter on the wall that some <laughs> That's that is so brilliant. That's and do they do it? Are they? There, yeah. must, be a, you know. there must be a simpler way than that. No, um, but yeah, like but it, so, it still works. I, I mean, I, apparently, yeah, apparently, it still works. God, what fun! So, where's uh, this again? Where, where's this church? Saint Mary's East Street in Kent. So it's a really cool church, and this is a brilliant device. I have no idea how it works. Tom, you should go. It's not that I'm far. I'm going from to you. go. I'm going. Yeah. To go. yeah. Yeah, you should you should go and try and try and figure Those out. Those long it works. winter days will just fly by. There's like <laughs> <laughs> there's a um, there's a thing that the Kent Archaeological Society have done where they've tried to explain how it works. I haven't. Fi- I I read okay. it very yeah, anyway. Well, there's a challenge for 2022. We w- we'll try and work that out. <clears throat> yeah. So is that number seven? That's number number Great. eight. Uh, oh, Great. So we've got two more to go. We've wow. got two two more in six minutes. Fine. Perfect. You can take I your time. Can- I can, yeah. Okay, so picture the scene. It's New Year's Eve and it's you're in Camelot. King Arthur and his pals are celebrating the Christmas season and in comes the mysterious green knight who joins in the fun and the games and he challenges any knight to strike him with an axe and if in return he can uh, he can take a return blow a year and one day. Uh, did you do an episode on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? No, no we, we haven't done that, haven't we, no, Tom? Yeah, we might. Okay, well, maybe you should. Um, I just saw the film about it last week. Oh, okay, very good. So this is the story of Gawain and the Green Knight. So this knight called um, uh, Sir Gawain, he accepts the Green um, the Green Knight's uh, challenge and he strikes his axe and he actually beheads the knight. But the Green Knight just stands up, picks up his head, sticks it back on. He's absolutely fine. And he reminds Gawain of the appointed time and place that he is going to have his, you know, his reciprocal blow. So it will be one year and one day 
time. So it would be New Year's Day the following year, and it would be in a place called the Green Chapel. Right. So for centuries, scholars have tried to figure out where that Green Chapel is. It's described as only an earthen mound containing a cavern, but most accursed. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there are two places in the Northwest Midlands that scholars think the location of the Green Chapel could be. So the first one, which is church number nine, <clears throat> it's not really a church, but sort of is a church, sort of is a church, uh, is Ludd's Church. Do you know this? No. Okay. No. So Ludd's Church is a deep um, chasm in the Gradback Hillside in Staffordshire. Um, it's created by this massive landslip and it's this close, damp, overgreen, bright green, mossy kind of um, kind of chasm in the rock. Um, it's a really good place for a green chapel because it's green. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but it's also a place where um, the Lollards, these proto-Protestant followers of John Wycliffe, met to worship in the 15th century. And it's thought that Ludd's church might be named after Walter de Ludank, who was captured there at one of their meetings. Um, and to me, that kind of dark space kind of evokes the fear and the evil and the you know the cursedness that you'd expect to go into. Rachel, in, it's, in it's not it, it's not um, a chapel now. No, no, no. It's no, just no. a cave. It's just a cave, but it's called yeah. Lud's Church. Yeah, you could go and pray in it if you wanted, Tom. I mean, no one's mm-hmm. going to stop you. Or sharpen oh, Tom, my axe, you, isn't there? There's kind of whetstone in, Tom, in the poem. Are you so being? He, he are you being very pedantic, Tom, saying it's not a church? Because I have extra. No, no, Rachel, no, no. I'm, absolu- I'm absolutely not. I just okay. wondered whether it was, you know, a kind of um, a kind of groovy green chapel. It is. Groovy okay. green you know, chapel. Go, it's a go, groovy... go for midnight mass or something. Yeah. Sir Gawain and the groovy green chapel. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think, well, I just think they're missing a trick there, the Church of England or whoever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they could. Rachel has strong views about the Church of England, Tom. We don't want to get into that. Okay, okay, well, uh, well, what it, well, somebody could take somebody, some church could take it over and make it into a chapel because Green Knight, it's been this film this year. I'm sure yeah. people would love to go there. I'm so, sure if you want to take Tom Holland up on his promotional <laughs> offer, get in touch with him, and Tom Holland's Green Chapel could be open. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's terrible all... winter wanderlands that people go to just before <laughs> yes, Christmas. There, they complain. Yes, the would. queues were massive. <laughs> yet another Tom Holland's Green yeah. Chapel the, the, the failure. The Green Knight, you know, he wasn't a giant. He was, yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, that's Lud's, that's Lud's church, right? And that's, and that's that's your church. That's number nine. But I just want to stick in there that, so other people suggest that the location for the Green Chapel could be Nan Tor Cave at Wetton Mill, which is only about 10, 10 miles away. Um, so this is definitely a mound with a cave. It's got multiple entrances into it. Um, but... Parts of it have kind of collapsed, like the roof has collapsed, it's very overgrown inside, so it's kind of hard to kind of see what it would have looked like in the 14th Quick century. Quick question for both of you, because mm-hmm. you will both know more about this than me. Why do people think it has to be in Staffordshire? Is it because of the dialect of the poem? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, yeah. thank you. Uh, yeah. I mean, oh, I'm, of course, it's not real, is it? I mean, there wasn't really a green night. Well, so it could be, you know, it could be, it could be, it could be either or none you of them. Don't know. We've, we've covered, yeah, you don't know. <laughs> Rachel's just done an impersonation that won't mean anything to anybody but me. <laughs> um, um, uh, because we've already covered, you know, talking snakes in this year's podcast with guiding Alexander the Great across the desert. Ah. And you don't know that didn't happen. Yeah. And, and all and of those indeed, kinds of things. And indeed Scrooge. And indeed Scrooge. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, could have happened. No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just pointing that out that it could Rach. be either of them or none. Okay. Your final choice, I have, please. I have, I have one the minute. The final countdown. No, you can go over. You can go over. We'll okay. permit. We'll cut okay. out all your earlier stuff. Thank. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, <laughs> anyway, so okay. This is this might. I'm worried that this might be a bit of an anticlimax now. But anyway, so oh, no. Christmas. No, I don't think so. Okay, so Christmas is. It's all about the birth of Christ. Okay. Right? Okay. So yeah. Seems controversial, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hard-hitting religious <laughs> punditry. <laughs> it's like a sermon by a church, a church of England vicar. Uh, okay, so scenes from the nativity, the appearance of the angels of the shepherds, the adoration of the magi, the magi's dream, Joseph's dream, the flight into Egypt, the massacre of the innocents, they are daubed onto walls all over England and Wales. So my first big shout-out, because I like to do a church shout-out, is to St. Aliens, Hanalian, Hanalian in Ross in Denbyshire. Now... This is a, no, this is a really cool church. Everybody should go there. It's got these painted panel ceilings. Um, so it's got the adoration of the Magi. It's got the Magi's dream, but it's got all of these painted, um, um, medieval painted saints kind of all over the ceiling, painted onto timber. Absolutely brilliant. I have a song. 
Hey, great, great. Well, I, I was wondering if you would have a song. Well, just because, you know, anyway, I'll just get straight to it. So the church is St. Aliens, St. Alien. Okay? Right. Yeah. <clears throat> and it goes like this. Oh, I'm Clanalian. I'm Clanalian <laughs> Church. I'm an old church in Denbyshire. Oh, I'm Clanalian. And it goes on like that. <laughs> That's amazing. Brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's I can't be even believe it. Your Saxon song. <laughs> anyway. I can't believe it's Christmas churches twenty three. <laughs> 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 okay, fine. But you, if you want to see kind of uh, holy infancy nativity site type scenes on churches, you should definitely go to churches at um, Ash Hampstead in Berkshire, Thorn and Parva in Sussex, Suffolk, sorry, uh, Pinvin in Worcestershire, Newington in Kent. Um, but my, uh, and those are all kind of 13th, 14th century paintings. A personal favourite, again, is in Oxfordshire. Dominic, only down the road from you. You haven't been to see it. It's St. <laughs> Peter's at Vincula, South Newington in Oxfordshire. Oh, I know and- South Newington. Yeah. yeah, you drive Have you been to the church, it. though? Yeah, I've never been to the church. I've never stopped the car. <laughs> exactly. You know the garage. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It's on the way to Banbury. It's on the way to Banbury. That's exactly yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. But this, uh, you, everybody should stop there because it is, like, it is an amazing church. Um, brilliant because you can always get in, which is always a bonus. Um, but uh, in terms of nativity scenes, it's got, um, like, a real kind of cartoon strip along the um, the north wall of the arcade in the nave uh but what's really great about it is it was painted with oil paints in the 1300s so the colors are really rich and saturated so unlike the kind of clay ochre paints that are quite faded everywhere else i mean the colors just like pop off the pop off the walls and um, there's you know you've got a lovely little flight into egypt where you've got mary on a donkey and stuff like that um but the most famous thing there isn't actually a church but you sh- church um <laughs> it is a church <laughs> the most famous thing in that church is not a christmas scene but it's um the martyrdom of thomas beckett and it's huge and it's amazing so, so how did that survive <clears throat> i suppose they were just all painted they over. just whitewashed it yeah but that is a brilliant church and definitely should you should definitely go there but my top choice for holy infancy scenes this christmas would be <laughs> so number 10 uh, so number the 10, last of the festive list the last of the festive is, list is st bothel's hardom in west sussex now, I did give this a shout-out in the last one. Dominic's I remember. Not face, yeah, I remember you. It, St. Bothell's is... It, it, it deserves, I've got something on you, clearly. No, it deserves more <laughs> than just a shout-out because this is the place that has some of the earliest wall paintings in the UK. They date from about the 1100s. They were painted over in 1300, so they survived because they weren't... They, they, Hold fashion, on, why would... Fashion, why? Dom, fashion, Dominic, fashion, fashion, fashion. Anyway, okay. so um, in this little church, kind of <clears throat> cars whiz past, nobody knows it's there, small little whitewashed church, Inside, in pink and yellow ochre, um, there are about 15 scenes from the Holy Infancy. Um, you know, I'm not going to list them all, but my favourite is the, uh, one of my favourites is the flight into Egypt. You've got Mary on this little gawky donkey. Um, you've got the presentation in the temple where all the urns start toppling. And then you've got the massacre of the innocents. And I mean, I guess what's so brilliant is they're only kind of spectral remains on these walls, but they're even still, they're just so wrought with drama and violence. So these babies are held up by their ankles, ready to be beheaded. And there are bodies kind of strewn around the ground. And it's just so gruesome. But as a nice little fact, one thing is, so the walls are, it's all kind of pink and yellow. Those are the kind of colours that they went for. They would have been kind of more kind of golden and red, I guess, uh, originally. But for kind of um, things like halos, they used a thing called salt green, <clears throat> which is uh, one of my, uh, yeah, one thing that I like. I always mention because I think it's so cool. So the salt green is like almost like a lurid kind of acidic green for the halos and kind of the really important bits. And how they made this salt green was they had sheets of copper, they smothered them with honey, uh, they, they put salt on top of it. And they dipped it into a vat of urine for a couple of weeks, took it out, scrape it all off, grind it all up. And then you have this lovely bright green paint for kind of Ooh. all of the most celestial little bit, bits of it. So, yeah. Now, um, so those are my 10. I have a couple of more things I'd just like to say very quickly. I do. Yeah. Okay. So 
one that would have absolutely made the top 10, but it was, it was in my other top 10, so I can't, I couldn't have it, was, um, St. Andrew's Boynton in East Riding of Yorkshire. So this is the one, um, where, uh, the guy, William Strickland, went to America and brought back turkeys, and he's got turkeys all over his church. Yes, Do you remember course, that yeah. one? Yes, so I mean, yeah. that would obviously be in a, t- in a top 10 of churches, Christmas churches, but it had already been in the other top 10, so. I just want yeah. to put it out there. If anybody wants to hear more about that church, please listen to the previous episode. Okay. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to talk about um, kind of t- customs like the Mary Lude in Wales and Huddening, the Huddening Horse in Kent. What are they? Uh, th- those are things basically where you get like, it's in, in Wales, the Mary Lude is like, it's a horse's skull and it's on a spring. And you, oh, like, yes. And, yes. And, and it chases def- people around the street. Yeah, it's like chasing but singing and kind of jolly and it's supposed to be good luck and she comes to your door. People say that it's like derived of the donkey that Mary went into oh, Bethlehem on. that's in the um, <clears throat> the Dark is Rising books by Susan Cooper. Yeah, she's brilliant. Actually, I was Susan Cooper, she's got one scene in um, The Dark is Rising. Um, the the Grey King, the, the green, the, green Mantle. The, no, I can't remember uh, which one. Green cover book, really good. But it's where it's it's Will. It's well, Will is the main yeah. character, and he's. Um, That's the first Dark is Rising, isn't it? It's not Oversee Understone. But actually, there's one scene in that that I really I, I was going to try and find as a top one, one of the top churches because I think it's so it's like so frightening actually because they're in the church and you know it's like all the demons are like bashing on the windows outside the church and they're kind of trapped inside and they're That's- like. Trying to, that's the first, that's number two, The Dark is Rising, I think. The Dark is Rising. Yeah. So, oh, it's so good and it's so scary. Yeah. That's set in the Chilterns, isn't it? Set in the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, anyway, um, but, uh, but this Mary Lude, the Grey Mare, is a kind of a Welsh thing. Um, uh, but there are loads of other versions of it all throughout, kind of, really, all throughout England. So there's, um, there's a hoodening horse in Kent, which again is where they use like a, a sometimes a wooden head, sometimes a horse's head so that was decorated that kind of went around in uh, the Cotswolds. There's a thing called the Broad, where they used a decorated bull's head. Um, in the East Midlands, they used a goat's head and it was called Old Top. So it's kind of an old tradition. And I really wanted to try and There's find one in Salisbury. Is there? Yeah. It used What's to go it? around the streets with a giant. It's in Salisbury Museum. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because Tom, I was trying to find a church connection and I couldn't. It's not a church. It's a, it's a, I think they kept it in the guild hall or something. So it's nothing to do with the church. Yeah. But I'm, just made, no. I'm just throwing it out there. It's very, okay. it's very sinister. No, well, but this is the thing. So just as a kind of a, you know, I can't, uh, there isn't a Christmas connection to this, but basically there is a really interesting story about three horses heads being found in the spire of a, um, a church in Northumberland in Elston, St. Cuthbert's. Tom, your friend, St. Cuthbert? Yeah, yeah. Els- Elsden in, in near Annick in Northumberland. And they found these three horses' skulls that were arranged kind of into a triangle in this like cavity, completely sealed cavity in the top of the spire, which is really cool. So like kind of some sort of protective sort of thing. Some people say it's like for um, for like resonance or um, reverberation of the bells or whatever, but I don't really see how that would work. No, it's a bit, a completely bit more M.R. James. Yeah, yeah very much. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there was that. I would say, uh, just as a fan of the podcast, um, Saint, the St. Cuthbert's episode, Tom, was one of my favourites. Um, oh, thank you. Great. How could Honestly, you? Honestly, do you know, Dominic, so didn't you? want to do that. He didn't yeah, want to do that. I'm shocked at that. Uh, no, but I you're mean, right. It was a yeah. brilliant decision to do You prefer that? Have you still so not listened to your right, own episode? Dominic was wrong. I you have not listened. Rachel refers, refuses to listen to her own episode, Tom, would you Oh, think? that's... No, I'd be too embarrassed. I'd be too embarrassed. I'd be too embarrassed. But um, just last thing I wanted to say, again, something that I couldn't fit in and I really want to, but for me, this is very important. And I will tell you why. So I, I love tinsel. <laughs> I love tinsel. Um, so tinsel was invented in Nuremberg in 1610. Um, and it's derived from this old French word, essentiel, which means to sparkle. I can't speak French. There is a place in Monmouthshire in Wales called Coombron. It's a new town. I think you should do a podcast on new towns if you haven't done one already. Um, Good subject. Yeah. 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 Good subject. So I think you should do something on the new towns. But Coombron in Monmouthshire, um, there's a... it's. One, it's the UK's largest tinsel production factory. And I just oh. love the idea of it, I have to say. Yeah. I just love, I love tinsel. Um, and at the height of their season, they produce 656, sorry, I'm doing like a pretty patella. I can't get my number now. <laughs> 656,000 feet of sparkly, um, you know, tinsel. sparkly stuff every, every, at the height it's of It's amazing season. it was invented in the early 17th century. I would, yeah. yeah. I would not have known that. It's probably yeah. not very eco-friendly though, Rach, tinsel, is it? Uh, no, it's not. 
Yeah. So basically, but in, it's the festive. Begin- in the beginning, it was real silver, and it kind of caught the caught the light of the um the you know the the candles and stuff to make it sparkle. Then uh, silver tarnishes, so uh, they started to use um a lead which doesn't tarnish, but lead's not great, you know. Yeah. So not I ideal. get kind of poisons not- you. Yeah, it poisons you exactly. And yeah. um, so then lead went out, and now they use like a sort of PVC thing. So no, it's yeah. not great. Um, but I just yeah, tinsel <laughs> makes me happy. Um, <laughs> well, I remember that, that on Christmas Day. That's going to be a Christmas present, a big bag of tinsel. <laughs> anyway, but just to say, um, this, this org- so this place in, in Cumbron in Monmouthshire, they pride themselves, actually kind of in an article they say, they pride themselves on their pert and bushy products. <laughs> oh, my God. Which, which, is what, which is exactly what you want tinsel to be. But it also, pert and bushy. Cumbron is important to me because it is where the founder of the Friends of Friendless Churches was, uh, where he was born and grew up. So, oh. there we go. What was his name again? Ivor Bulmer Thomas. Fantastic person. You should do a podcast on him. Well, We've got that's a reminder to our listeners that for Christmas they should all donate money to the Friends of Friendless Churches to save some of these churches that you have been talking about. Yeah. So, on that note, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I shall see you at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And to our listeners, thank happy you so Christmas. much for, for listening. Uh, have a wonderful, happy, and healthy Christmas. Um, don't follow Tom Holland down the, the Scrooge Road, the Bar Humbug Road. But no, be like, follow, follow me down the Scrooge Road because I'll be going out handing turkeys to... I should be I should be dancing like Mr. Fezziwig. <laughs> yeah. Um, or Mr. Fozziwig, of course, as, <laughs> as some of us know him from the Muppets Christmas Carol. So... Uh, and Dominic, um, yes. we will actually, amazingly, be back on Christmas Day. Will now, we this is very exciting, isn't it, Tom? Shall we tell the listeners about this? Yeah, you go, go ahead and tell the listeners. So Tom had this idea... <laughs> I told him it was a terrible idea, but he has prevailed. Uh, and I think it's a brilliant idea and you're all going to love it, of doing the 12 days of Christmas, of doing a podcast every day for one of the 12 days. So we'll be doing them about uh, um, events or moments that happened on this day. In and each day. one of us has chosen. And each one of us has chosen, exactly. So Tom's are all... The 26th, 27th, um, so on. About eunuchs and gentle mutilation. And no, minor, they're not. Are all no, they're in not. The, uh, the Labour government of the late 70s. <laughs> <laughs> You will have to listen to find out whether to that is out true yeah, or not. But we won't be doing um, uh, these kind of podcasts until after Twelfth Night, and then uh, in the new year we'll be back with uh, with the customary two exactly episodes so. a week, or maybe 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 more, depending. But uh, in the meanwhile, have a very very happy Christmas, have a great new year, and uh, we will see you in the new year. Merry Christmas. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.